What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Gorilla Social Work Podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Alpha Counseling and Treatment, who is the largest and most respected provider for justice-involved clients in need of sexual offense-specific treatment services. Alpha is also a JRI-certified agency providing moral recognition therapy and substance use disorder treatment to justice-involved clients. You can be confident that the treatment you will receive with Alpha will help keep you out of the criminal justice system. Alpha clinical professionals are trained and certified in cognitive behavioral interventions for sexual offending. This evidence-based program teaches participants strategies for avoiding sexual offending and related behaviors. The program places heavy emphasis on skill-building activities to assist with cognitive, social, emotional, and coping skills development. Visit their website today at utahsbesttherapy.com or you can call them directly at 801-645-5455. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Triple S. Triple S provides scientific outcome measures for clinicians in the field of behavioral health. Outcome measures provide direction for both clients and treatment providers using evidence-based practice. Any program not using outcome measures to track their clients' progress and success has been scientifically proven to be less effective. On our episode today, we have Mr. Adrian Eads, who is running for the Republican seat for Weber County Sheriff. So we have a good discussion with him on his experience in this field and some of the changes he would like to see made. And we will get into that now. Enjoy. We're already rocking and rolling right now. We got the rock and roll We are. We're rolling. Rock and rolling with the mighty Adrian Eads. Is that right, Adrian? Yeah. You go by anything? What's, I mean, anything other than that? No. No. Okay. Mace likes to find fault with our guests' names. I have never done that except for the last podcast that was posted. Barf Truck. uh, I think (laughs) you said something about uh, Nito. That's true, actually. Uh, Yeah, the last one. You know, it's your thing. So what? So. Go ahead. I don't know anything <laughs> that I can talk shit on Adrian Eads. Like, oh, yeah, I, I don't have any cool nicknames. It's not like I'm, you know, killer. Yeah, killer, <laughs> killer Eads, <laughs> killer Eads. There it is, yeah. right there. There it is. No, that's good. Well, um, well, thanks for coming on, man. Really. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks yeah. for the invitation. Oh no, we really appreciate it. So, um, tell us a little bit about why you're here. I mean, tell, I mean, so for the listeners, who you are, why you're here, why we invited you. I, I reached out to you a couple weeks ago, I think. Yeah, last week. Right, we worked together before. We'll talk a little bit about that, but okay. yeah, tell us why we're here. Um, my name is Adrian Eads, and I'm running for the Republican nomination for Weber County Sheriff. Oh yeah, boom! Look at that. So, so. Um, how does that work? Because I always, like, sheriff, I, I mean, I'm an idiot, so I just always think it's like, you know, the sheriff of the Wild West. And obviously, <laughs> as I've grown up, you learn this is an election, right? Yeah. And so there's, you know, different parties, uh, Republicans, Democrats. So um, are you at this point, is it in the nominations process then? Yeah. So there's two paths to essentially get on the ballot. Uh, there's the tried and true Republican caucus mm-hmm. process where... The voters will get together, um, kind of as small little precincts and communities in March. They'll nominate, they'll elect delegates to represent like their precinct. Mm-hmm. Those will, those people will all go to the county convention and they will send forth a name or two for the primary. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans have been doing that for a hundred years, except for about a 10 year period in the 1930s. Uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2014. Uh, there was the Count My Vote initiative, um, and the state legislature path, passed 
another route to the primary, which is the signature route. So you can gather X number of signatures, um, and whether you do well in the convention or not, you go to the primary at the end of June. Okay. And then okay. Winner takes all from there and goes to the general election in November to face whoever, if the Democrats field anyone. So, so this June. Then. This June is the primary, okay. and then November will be the general election. And then hopefully you'll come through with the Republican nomination at that point, and then the general election is in November. So yes. by this upcoming November, if you're the sheriff, you're going to come back and do the podcast again, right? Exactly. You might be in a different political realm at that point. That'd yeah. Balling at that point. You can do your first stop of your victory tour will be here. Yeah. 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 I'd be like, I'd reach out to him. We're like, hey, Eads, you want to come back on the podcast? And then you just have some secret service agent come beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the end of it. No, it'll be nothing like that. Like, he's, sent he's scheduled with the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll be quite to that oh, level. All right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it, it is. It is kind of cool. I mean, thinking about it because I've, uh, I, you know, I think running for elect, elected office is, is pretty intimidating. I mean, what's what's your background up until this point? What have you been doing? Because I mean, you worked in law enforcement for a while. So, yeah. I mean, I said we worked together before. So, what's so, been your background up to this point? For the past 12 and a half years, I've worked for adult probation and parole. I was a parole officer for much of that for the past three years and some change. I've been a staff supervisor, which for people who know nothing about probation and parole, essentially means I supervise the parole agents now. I supervised nice. the halfway house staff for a little while, uh, the Northern Utah Community Correctional Center, where you guys offer your services. Yeah. So the, you supervise the supervisors then? I supervise, the yeah, agents. like the agents and the, the line staff. I love that. Agents. Feels very matrixy. Way cooler. Right? Yeah. You're yeah. an agent. I wonder who, who made that decision in APMP. You know, we call ourselves agents. I'll be like, hell yeah. So it's like call. we all need like little badges. And when agent. we go up to someone, agent, you know, like, have you ever seen NCIS? And they, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Like Much that. more official. The, or or uh, what is it? Um, what's that? What's Criminal that? Minds? No, no, no. CSI. <laughs> CSI. Oh, yeah. Where it plays that. Who's, what's that song? It's like, wow. Like that, you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, no, I don't. <laughs> One more time with that, though. No. What was that sound? No, I, I could pull it up and play it for you. Like they, you know, uh, what's that song, dude? At the beginning of every one of those of those CSI. I'm trying to blank. I don't know. I'll Google it, dude. It's <laughs> no, that's yeah. If you just had that, like every time you drop that, you pull out your agent thing, and it just plays music. The, in the song blares. That's what I was. Oh yeah, the Who. Yeah, the Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like that was that actually was a good. You did a good job. Yeah, that wasn't yeah, horrible. That was good. Yeah, people. Except no been, one knew what you were talking yeah, about. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, <laughs> I should know that. what I'm talking about beforehand. I just always thought about. Um, we did a group one time. We were talking about. I, I think you were running it. Like, if you had a superpower, oh yeah, what would it be? Right? Like, what would you? What would you do if you had a superpower? What would it be? It'd have to be fly. Fly. Yeah, that's yeah. A pretty popular one. What would you do? That would just be fun. <sighs> what would I do if you were? If you any superpower, you could do anything. I don't know. I think invisible would be kind of cool. Invisible is good. Mm. We'll come back to that here in a minute. What would you do, Jeff? <laughs> I'll save your punchline because I like yours. Um, I'm going to go with fly also. Fly also. Yeah. Although, dude, I, uh, the funny thing was, if you ever watched Hollow Man, I love Kevin Bacon. He's he's not like invisible for he's like less than 24 hours and he goes and like sexually assaults a chick I'm yeah. like come on dude <laughs> like you're invisible and then immediately you go and yeah. do that. I don't think he can make that movie nowadays. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I was, I was, uh, when Jeff said that, 
I was thinking about it and I had some time to think about it and I was like, oh yeah, I've got a good one. So basically, my superpower would be anytime I walked into the room, it'd play that one 80s song where it's all, you're unbelievable. Oh. <laughs> and then that's it. That's, that's the whole your superpower. <laughs> so whether there's a speaker or not, it just right, yeah. somehow. Out of everyone's everybody, phones. yeah, you just walk into the room, you open the door, you're unbelievable. Oh. You know, everybody's like, <laughs> by the way, that's 91, by the way. What? You said 80s. Is that a 90s song? Yeah, it's a 90s song. Yeah, it's a 90s song. Oh, yeah. That's always my music nerd side coming out. You they might were, need to. That would be. Who is that, who's that band? EMF. Yeah. EMF. Oh, giving it credit. They had, they had tons of good songs. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. Obviously. Not, yeah. Obviously. That's the only song anyone can think I of know. from them. And yeah. no one even knows they yeah. are the ones that did it. Yeah. Nope. Well, that's uh so now we got that out of the way. That's a, that's a normal question you ask somebody who's running for political offices. What would your super ha- ha- what would your superpower right. be? Right? Well, uh, what was your answer again? Invisibility. Invisibility. That's yeah. a pretty good that's one. Good. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Cuz you could do some good investigations. Oh, see there you go. You're very like, career oriented. Perpetually inv- invisible or by choice? By choice. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. that'd be a curse. Yeah, that would be <laughs> so <laughs> horrible. <laughs> <Just forever. laughs> that's an awful superpower. <laughs> that's like a curse. Yeah. 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 Well, well, yeah, the agent in you comes out, man. You're uh, going to be investigating folks, just dropping by your parolees. I don't even know you're there, just breathing down their neck a little bit. Yeah. Whispering in their ear. Yeah, just yeah. making sure they're in compliance, yeah. you know, making yeah. sure they're doing what they spo- are supposed to. Well, what? so what got you onto this idea of running for sheriff? I mean, you've been working for APMP for quite a while, I mean, more than a decade now. And Yeah, 15 super- years almost with corrections. Yeah, your supervisor pretty high up i mean our experiences we worked with uh with adrian at um uh, the northern Utah community correction center we were providing inpatient sex offender treatment and you were part of the treatment team so yes. on a regular basis we would staff cases um discuss how groups were going how clients were interacting graduations in- intakes this that and the other I, I think we got a pretty good relationship going on there uh, and we always try to maintain a really good relationship with APMP we love the work that you guys do um, what what got you to the point where you want wanting to run for sheriff so over the past few years um, really working hard here in Weber County um, it just feels like things at the jail are lacking um, it feels like there's a lack of transparency, a lack of accountability, a lack of treatment opportunities, a lack of kind of that next step. Um, and it feels like kind of the system of, well, this is how we've always done it, or this is all we want to do has just been the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it's time for change here in Weber County. It's time for jail standards and jail things that happen in the jail to be more transparent for Mm -hmm. the sheriff's office to be more accountable to um, the employees and the taxpayers and the community at large. Um, Utah doesn't have the biggest population in the United States, but we have the highest in custody death per capita. So Mm -hmm. obviously there's room for improvement. Really? Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And then in terms of like, is that statewide? Yeah. Statewide. So it's not like Weber County is, has the worst in the nation, but Utah in general, you know, between, what was, the, so the, the highest death per capita nationwide, you said? Yeah, okay, for in-custody death. That. So per 1,000 people, there's more prisoners dying yeah, in Utah yeah. than in any other state in the country. Hmm. Yeah, okay. and you'd think mm-hmm. that you know more people would die in a place like Rikers Island in New York, but obviously mm-hmm. they've figured out something. I mean, until last week, the county sheriffs and corrections were saying, well, the jail standards are great, and we police each other, and we promise there's nothing going on here. But they they wouldn't release anything, mm-hmm. and I think that we should release things. And then 
just for people who find themselves in legal trouble and go into jail, they come out, a lot of them come out in a better position, but within a short amount of time, they're kind of back to where they were at. Um, and I think that some of the mental health stuff is contributing to that. Mm -hmm. So like what kind of stuff is typically under lock and key that, that I guess if you were in this sheriff position that, that you would be more transparent about? Um, so the standards in general, like, you know, how well the inmates are being taken care of, uh, what treatment is being provided to them, what food's being provided, like all the standards that govern the jails in Utah have been under lock and key. Um, and you couldn't, you didn't, no one besides the sheriffs and like the Department of Corrections knows what the standards were. They're just barely starting to release them. So whatever you can think of, I likely don't know the answer to it because I don't know what the jail standards were or are today. Oh, and is this something that like other other counties do in terms of like uh, uh, it's, it's, it's hard for me to quantify what I'm asking? So here. statewide, it's all this secret thing. All of the counties have their jail standards that's approved by the Sheriff's Association. And the consultant that's helped them with that, Gary DeLand, he feels like his information is proprietary, so they wouldn't release any of it. So now they're going to go redact out all his stuff and release it. But like in Idaho, it's on the Internet. If you Google Idaho jail standards, you can pull up the whole jail standards and see the how each jail is doing. But you can't do that in Utah. So by proprietary, he's saying he has standards that uh, make the jail more efficient, more effective, more, I mean, whatever. Whatever it and is. And he doesn't want another, like, jail to see that and then use that to kind of improve on their jail or something like that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, but, I mean, all the jails in Utah use his standards. Mm -hmm. So it's like he doesn't want another state to know what his standards are and then copy them. Mm -hmm. I don't completely understand. Yeah. The yeah. whole secrecy of this. Yeah, it does. I mean, it seems like this is like it almost, I mean, I don't know. When lawyers kind of get involved, it always gets a little murky. You know, I mean, if yeah. it, I, I, if I had, I mean, in other words, like, uh, okay, so if I compare it to something like with us almost a little bit. So like, uh, you know, we we purchased proprietary material from um, our last podcast. We did a um, an interview with uh, Jamie Gruesome Newsome. Was it the nickname we gave her? <laughs> oh, I do. I yeah, do bring yeah. that up. Yeah. yeah. Killa Eads. All right. So um, Jamie Gruesome Newsome, she's a, uh, she's a PhD at the University of Cincinnati Corrections Institute. And one of the things we did was purchase their evidence-based practice for sex offenders that we're implementing at all of our, all of our agencies. And, um, us taking that and, you know, inadvertently sharing that with another agency and then saying, okay, go ahead and use this would be certainly a violation of their copyright material and proprietary standards. And so to some degree, the jail standards and how they conduct business at the jail, some of that's proprietary. So they're trying to get these, the information out, but have that part of it redacted. In other yeah, words. I guess he, some of the things he's put in there is based upon studies he's done or research he's done and he doesn't want that to be available. And I'm fine with that. Like, yeah, that seems to make sense. In yeah. general, like the citizens of whatever county in Utah and specifically Weber County, like shouldn't we know what treatment standards we have, what, how we're housing people, what medical standards we have, what mm -hmm. we, you know, won't treat, what we will. I just, I feel like it should all be transparent. And then right now, you know, maybe you guys have a different relationship, mm -hmm. But I feel like in general, if someone has a problem with the sheriff's office, uh, you feel like the staff is not professional, you want to talk about how your family members 
being cows, whatever you want to talk about. You mm-hmm. want to talk about search and rescue, the deputies on the boat at Pineview, whatever you want to talk about. It feels like you call the sheriff's office, and if you were like, I want to talk to the sheriff, it feels like there's kind of that gatekeeper, like, mm-hmm. eh, we'll pass it on, you know? Mm-hmm. But, like, you can't just email the sheriff. You can't just call in. Like, mm-hmm. I envision people being able to just pick up the phone and call the sheriff's office, and it rings my office, and if I'm there... They're talking to me, and if I'm not available, they're leaving a message, and I'm calling them back. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't need kind of these, you know, layers to get to people in authority. Like, if you have an issue with the person you elected, pick mm-hmm. up the phone and call them and say, you suck at your job, or you're doing a great job, or have you thought about this, or are you looking yeah. at this, or like, how do we do this? Yeah. And, well, And you actually want to fill those calls, huh? Yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah. Well, it seems like, I mean, like you were referring to earlier, I, I, I think we have a really great relationship with the sheriff's department as it stands right now. And so Terry Thompson's the current sheriff and he's not running for reelection. And I think we've developed a really good relationship with him. Um, Chief Burton, Dr. K, we had her, Dr. K on the podcast not too long ago. Um, but, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, I, I like all the people we work with down there. I mean, again, I have a utmost respect for law enforcement. Yeah, I think they have an incredible staff there. Right. And, and I, so in other words, I think there's, there's certainly like you notice as well as I have, there's a lot of outrage with regards to, um, like you said, you know, there's deaths in in jail and stuff like that and, and family members and the society at large. Again, one of the things we had referenced on a previous podcast too was, okay, um, especially as treatment providers and we can't say nothing everything is protected by you know hipaa and we can't say a word and one of the things i've noticed is um people's outrage is largely guided by a lack of information so if we don't get if information isn't there naturally they're going to fill in the blanks and sometimes the way they fill those blanks in aren't, aren't that great and so you're saying can we be more transparent can we be more transparent so the outrage isn't necessarily, I mean, people are informed as to what's going on and don't have really, you know, the outrage is not necessary. Can we be more accountable to taxpayers, stuff like that, which all seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. Like, I mean, to me right now, as it stands, if there's an in-custody death, let's just use that as an example, because the standard examiner has kind of been hammering that home recently between Davis and Weber County. Sure. The only way that the newspaper and the citizens in general find out about it is because the family member of who died calls the newspaper and says, my family member died in custody, and here's what we know. Yeah. And to me, every death, why can't the sheriff's office issue a press release going, unfortunately, there was a death in custody. We're we're having Davis County. We're having Ogden PD. We're having Riverdale. We're having some outside agency conduct the investigation, so it's all above board. Mm -hmm. We're... Sorry to the family. We want to help ensure this Mm -hmm. doesn't happen again. Like, we want to look for ways to improve. But if you never come out and say, hey, something happened, how does anyone ever push for an improvement? So what do you think that is? Do you think that's a fear of litigation kind of thing or a fear of being blamed? I'm sure it's a fear of litigation. I'm sure that the county commissioners and the county attorney are probably going to tell me you can't do that. But I'm not saying, like, I don't think that there's this big conspiracy going on in any of the sheriff's offices or the state prison or anywhere in Utah. Individuals are coming in who likely haven't had access to health care for an extremely long period of time. They've likely abused drugs, many of them. Like they're coming in in really poor shape. Mm. They may have some serious mental health concerns and then they end up dying in custody. That's not necessarily the fault of the jail. It's not the fault of the staff. 
like the blame likely rests on the person from their lifestyle choices. Mm. But shouldn't we just at least come out and go, they came in and they reported they're withdrawing from heroin and like, here's what we know at this time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I mean, if, if there is some misconduct for some reason, then let's just own up to it. So barring any like, uh, I don't know, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking crap on lawyers. I mean, I think they serve a purpose, obviously. But if a, if a, if an attorney were to say, you know what, Sheriff Eads, we probably ought to not say anything about this right now till you know we get more information or whatever it is. Um, you're saying, barring something, somebody really compelling you and twisting your arm and saying, eh, don't say that. Getting out ahead of it, um, you you believe would be a better PR strategy in terms of like, well, look, there, unfortunately, because I, I think you're referencing something that's very true. I mean, there's going to be a death in, in any penitentiary type setting. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate. And I think anybody in that setting would prefer that not to happen. And not just for liability purposes either. I think, it, I mean, a lot of people really want, you know, um, can I, can I create an environment where this is a comfortable state of incarceration, but it serves its purpose? And then they move on. So nobody wants that. Um, it's going to happen though. I mean, just eventually, you know, yeah, that's I mean, just how it works, right? So you're saying, um, PR wise, can we get out ahead of this a little bit? Can we just, you know, be as transparent as possible? Can we report the facts as we know it and then make a commitment to filling in the blanks as time goes on as, as we find out more? And and not only that, invite an investigating agency that's not us doing this to kind of look into this and say and show that we were we were totally above board and we did the right things. And if there's something that we could have done better, like, you know, we missed something, then I think we need to know that. Right. You know, and the to me, it's not necessarily a PR thing. You know, I'm not trying to get ahead of this to, yeah, that know, might be a bad word to yeah. do anything with PR. But like, if someone dies in custody, mm-hmm. we just need to own it. Like, someone died, and we don't want it to happen again. So, what processes, what policies, what strategies can we put in place to make mm-hmm. it happen? You know, and I don't know how it happens if when someone dies in custody. But I feel like as a sheriff, if let's say your sister was in jail mm-hmm. and your sister commit suicide Mm -hmm. like as a sign of respect shouldn't the county sheriff who's elected be the person showing up on your doorstep going i'm really sorry this happened yeah like why not be the i think it would go a long ways like i'm sorry this happened and i'm having i don't know i don't know how to i don't even how like i don't know what i would want i mean i don't it would i mean i I get what you're saying i feel like you want more than a phone call and mate i I don't know how it works i assume someone shows up right I get what you're saying, though. I mean, I, I think uh, as a show of respect and um, and um, just, you know, I think condolences, you know, I think that, that as a uh, – th- yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I would say it's hard to it's hard to imagine, you know, what I would want because I might be – I mean, dep- I don't know. I might be mad. I, it's hard to say. But, I, I, I mean, I think you're just recognizing these people are in pain, certainly emotional – their loved one, regardless of what was going on in their life, was still their loved one. Um, and uh, to the degree that you can offer your condolences, you know, probably important. Sure. Yeah. And I also think – let me just jump in real yeah, quick. Man. I also think that it's important as a sheriff to go, at the end of the day, what happens in the jail, what happens on the road with my deputies, what happens – anything related to the sheriff's office. Like, the buck stops with me as a sheriff. Like, I'm the person that at the end of the day is responsible for it. So you should – if something bad happens, you should hear it from me. It shouldn't mm-hmm. be like, oh, we're not going to talk about this and hope that maybe, you know, the news never know about it. And um, we're just going to send, you know, someone to come tell you about it. Like, you should just hear it from the person at the top, you know, mm-hmm. like, I'm really sorry this happened. Or 
this is what happened and it just you should hear it from the person at the top because at the end of the day whoever the sheriff is whether it's sheriff thompson whether it's me whether it's someone else if the voters decide i'm not the guy for them mm-hmm. they should just hear it from the person at the top they should hear it from the sheriff because he's the responsible person he's the person that all the citizens of Weber County elected. He's the person that has been entrusted for the care of some of our most vulnerable citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, hearing you talk, I, I think I'm seeing more and more kind of what your vision is. If you turn on the news, you know, like over the past couple of years, uh, it's, it's a tough time to be a police officer in, in this nation. And there's a lot of distrust of police officers. There's a lot of... I think there's this idea out there that is kind of the, the, the boys in blue cover up for their own and do these types of things. And, um, like, I, I mean, I, I, certainly there's wrongdoing that some of the officers have. I, I tend to always fall on the, not always, I tend to often fall on the officer's side and when, because that's a, you gotta got a hard ass job. But again, I kind of think a lot of the national consensus is that the, that policing has been militarized. And that kind of the, the old archetype of the police officer strolling around the neighborhood, you know, helping cats out of trees and, you know, playing, playing a game with whatever kids are, you know, throwing, throwing a ball around and, you know, of course fighting crime as well. Like that, that's long, that kind of that idealistic vision of police officers has gone by the wayside and it's been a lot more, uh, again, I think the military, the militarization of the police force has scared a lot of people. Again, I, there's a place for it. The criminals have bigger guns now too. Right. But, but at the same time, I guess if sort of the, the, the pulse of America is kind of leaning towards this distrust of officers and you're saying, no, I want to be that guy. I want to be here. I want to, as the sheriff, to be the one to offer condolences, or I want to be able to pick up a phone and, you know, listen to a phone call about, well, I mean, who knows what well, you're going to be fielding a lot of phone calls if you're willing to open yourself up like that. But, but that's your point though, right? Yeah. I mean, you're trying not to, you're, I guess you're trying to push away from a lot of what people in this nation are scared of. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a place for law enforcement to show up and take care of the job. But I think we've kind of gotten away from that being a part of, like, the foundation, the fabric of the community. You know, showing up and playing with the kids, getting the cat out of the tree. And I think that we end up losing some of our effectiveness because if the public doesn't trust us and people are like, oh, it looks like they're showing up straight from Afghanistan, like – how do we conduct great investigations and get people who may not always want to talk to us? I was out gathering signatures earlier tonight and I went to one of my neighbors and he was like, well, how are you going to deal with the minorities in the county? Because as a minority, you don't understand where I'm coming from. And he's completely right. Like I've never been an African-American male in Weber County stopped by any of the law enforcement agencies. And I recognize that my experience is going to be different than his. We need to get it so that all of the people in Weber County, every ethnicity, completely trusts us. How has that been for you guys? I mean, like, you know, if I go back to um, – so, like, you know, going back all the way to, like, Ferguson, and since then there's been a, a huge um, kind of this spotlight on police officer misconduct, right? Particularly, like – this idea of these um, unjustified shootings and whatnot. And um, 
I mean, so coming from law enforcement perspective, I, I think you're totally right. Like if I'm a black person in the community, um, a, a lot of people, I saw a South Park episode that was really great on this and people are like talking to, you know, Token, he's one of the, the characters <laughs> on South Park and they say, oh, we understand. I was like, you don't, you don't get it. And, and to, to some degree, it's like we were talking about this on the um, a previous podcast, you're talking about, you know, like sexual abuse and I, you know, trying to say, look hold try to hold back your criticism of females in terms of how they're viewing this because you're not a female if you're a dude you can't have a whole lot of empathy and i'm not saying like you don't care about them i'm saying trying to see things from a female perspective is tough if you're a guy because you just don't see things the same way same way as if i'm a white guy like i just don't get the world through the same lens and so i think appreciating that but then again too um as a law enforcement, I mean, there's a lot of mixed things that I have to deal with. I mean, how did you guys kind of, as that all started to rain down, I mean, what did that change up in, in your guys' mentality or training or anything like that? Did that kind of... Well, I think it's led to a lot more use of body cameras. I, I think that it's started to push law enforcement more, to be more accountable and a little mm -hmm. bit more transparent. Um, and I think we just need to keep down that direction. I so think you that, like that then? I like it. Yeah. Um, I... I I'm always a fan of transparency. Yeah. Um, I think that there's no reason that in government, whether it's law enforcement, state government, wherever, pick a, the city council. Like, we don't need a whole lot of, like, backroom dealing. We don't need to be, like, trying to figure out how to make this work for us. Like, let's just lay it out there for what it is mm -hmm. and just own up to it. So you feel like you can be an effective police officer, effective law enforcement official, but also be accountable and transparent to everything. Body cameras are a good thing if you're doing the right thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that if you're not doing the right thing, then let's let's help correct that. And if it's not correctable, then maybe law enforcement isn't the job for you. I think that mm -hmm. no matter how you feel, the law enforcement officer that shows up on the traffic stop at your house because they're doing an investigation, because you called 911, whatever, like – Shouldn't they be the most professional person there? Mm -hmm. Like they should show up and just be professional. And I think that we need to hold yeah. law enforcement accountable. Um, I think so. I've been out with some law enforcement officers who, because they don't have a body cam, sometimes their language gets a little bit colorful. And mm -hmm. I think that we lose a little bit of that professionalism. Like mm -hmm. people should look at us to be, you know, kind of the foundation of things, the rock, you know, the... Hey, they're going to show up yeah. and do the job right every time, and they're not going to let their personal emotions start to color what they're doing. It's interesting that you say that because – and I don't know what your guys' experience was on this because I've worked a lot with clients, and – I mean, so I'm running groups, and one of the primary issues that come up is them bitching and moaning about um, – you know, like, a, okay, how do they expect me to be accountable if they're not accountable? Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, they're, they're accusing of an APMP agent or shift leader or whomever lying to them or treating them poorly or whatever, and then using that as justification for their own bad behaviors. You know what I mean? Um, and, I, and I do try to emphasize, well, you know, unfortunately, they're people too, and they're going to make mistakes. And um, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, you know, you, you have to grant considerations for these are people too. And, and, and I like that you're saying, well, we should uphold a standard there. We're setting an example, you know, for folks. And, and they certainly, I'm not going to, you know, behave like a criminal trying to subdue criminals, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, you get that a lot. Well, yeah. And he, Adrian actually just said something that you and I say all the time when it comes to people working in our profession. He, he was saying that there's some people 
I'm paraphrasing you, Adrian, but you said there's some people that should not work in law enforcement. Oh yeah. 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 That, so that, that's something that like we talk about quite a bit with therapists. There's, there's a lot of therapists that should not be working with the population. They, whether it's like a personal bias or a lack of talent or, uh, just, uh, maybe not really a good sound understanding or a willingness to develop professionally, whatever it is, there's a lot of therapists that do more harm than good when interacting with clients, especially a sensitive population. Like we work with, well, cops are the same dude. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that maybe maybe when they first got into the career field they or 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 who knows maybe they were never cut out to be a good police officer from the, to begin with so i guess am i am i, am I paraphrasing you correctly Some i think you are. are so what what do you think makes an ideal police officer like who what type of folks are you going to be trying to hire or have work for you well i'm hoping that i can work with the county commissioners and increase the pay weber county has really low pay right now and so mm-hmm. adult probation and parole has been kind of taking some of their brightest talent oh, okay i'd like to kind of reverse that and start taking some of the brightest talent from other agencies mm-hmm. i want the individuals who aren't here because they think they're going to get rich mm-hmm. you, you don't i don't think you become a therapist i don't think you become a police officer i don't think you become a dcfs caseworker for the money. Oh, I was misled. I was told I'd be a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> Sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I want the people who are here because they truly want to make a difference in the community, not because it's like, well, this sounds like it's fun. Mm-hmm. If you want something that's fun, go jump out of an airplane with a parachute. That mm-hmm. might be fun for you. But, like, there's a lot of parts of law enforcement that aren't fun, you know. Mm-hmm. The other night we were um, – I've been helping out with the Operation Rio Grande, so I was down in Salt Lake – doing some of that. And we rolled up to the park and there was this guy who was in trouble and the troopers are on full on CPR on him and we're giving him Narcan and we're, we're trying to help him. Like, that's not fun. No part of that is So he overdosed on heroin? I don't, I'm not sure he overdosed on heroin. I think mm-hmm. there were some other things going on, like, mm-hmm. but still just. Trying to figure it out though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the troopers and the paramedics and the firefighters and everyone there, we all tried to do the best we could to save his life. But like, there was no fun in that. Like, ooh, mm-hmm. CPR, this is fun. Like, a lot of part of law enforcement, corrections, probation, parole, it's not necessarily fun. So mm-hmm. if you're here because you think this sounds fun and glamorous, you're in the wrong profession. I mean, I want, there are some some fun. There parts. is some fun sure. parts. I mean, I, I'm sure as a therapist, there's some really fun parts. Every the, day, the seeing <laughs> the seeing someone make you know those positive changes and like get kind of out of like whatever cycles they might be in that are causing them trouble in their life that might be fun but Mm -hmm. like writing a report about client progress may not be the most fun thing the paperwork mm -hmm. may not be fun writing reports isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. fun it's a necessary part of the job but yeah you know i want the people who believe in what we're doing believe that they can do better in the community they can help elevate our community to a better standard yeah well i I tend to i tend to kind of err on the side of of jeff on this like when he was talking about if there's something goes down with a law enforcement official, they have one story, somebody ever, somebody else has another. I tend to err on the side of law enforcement officials. And the reason why is because I feel like I've developed really good relationships with them beyond just I'm a therapist reporting to them. I mean, there, there's people who genuinely care about clients being successful in the community because I think they know the client, that the community is safer when that client is successful. And so that's really good to work with, you know, and, I don't know. Some people, I, I think it's 
I think it might be just kind of uh, you look at like a, you know a show like The Shield or you know Training Day or something. Yeah, that's how cops are, bad boys, right? And if I have <laughs> and if I have my mind that this is how cops are, and then if I buy into a narrative that you know that they they're it's corrupt and they're all corrupt and they're big as criminals as we are, I can see how you would. I mean, that when you had an interaction with them, it just wouldn't go so hot. Like was, if I was a criminal committing a crime in the community and that was my outlook on you. And so I, I think that um, – I don't think there's anything wrong with what you're saying. I think you're saying um, can we do better at creating an image, creating a sense of conduct that is kind of going back to that whole protect and serve and, and that, that, you know, that's that's who we are. You know, like the beat cop that walks the streets, you know, old, old Mally or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Always had some Irish Always name. Always got to be the Irish <laughs> yeah. name, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that guy could be trusted. I, I mean, I really like that. I would really like a sense because for me, um, I, you know, I think even with a lot of the clients I work with, man, they are so anti-law enforcement, even when it's to their own benefit, which is a tragedy. I mean, I had a, I've had several clients that, they come to me with these real issues and um, because they've had a bad experience or because their perception is just so off base, they refuse to contact the police department to their own detriment. Like I'd rather go back to prison. I'm like, come on, man. Like what had to happen to you? And, and I think if we can clean that up along the way, it, maybe it's just, again, maybe it's just they had horrible perceptions about this. They're dealing with some cognitive distortions. Maybe it was because it was working with somebody who shouldn't have been in that position. And I think that's, that's probably a good mandate. I mean, I think that, 99.9% 99.9% of all the law enforcement officers in the state of Utah are exceptional people who are there for the right reasons, who want to make their agency, their community, the state, everything better, and are what we want as law enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. And for that 0.1%, that 0.01%, whatever it is, we need to identify who those people are and send them on their way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they've been around for... 15 years and all of a sudden they became part of that small percentage. Like if it's not, if you can't do the job anymore, if you can't remain professional and impartial and just conduct thorough investigations, make the victims feel like their rights are being taken care of and make the people who you're having to arrest feel like they're being treated professionally, whether they agree with being taken to jail or not, they understand the reason like, that's who I want. I want the professionals. And if you can't do it anymore, that's okay. Yeah. So, there's plenty of other professions. There's plenty of other things for you to go do. Yeah, become a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> you but know, don't do you, this anymore. <laughs> you, you, you talked about something that I wanted to circle back around to because you, you were saying, you know, it's not all about the money. You want people that are in it for the right reasons. And you also referenced a pay increase for for some of the – you know, for, for some of the incoming officers, because you're sick of other agencies headhunting the best and the brightest. I, I think that's smart, though, right? Yeah. I mean, like because you, I mean, it's, it sounds kind of callous to say you get what you pay for, you know. Because again, I'm, I'm personal friends with some odd police department officers that are great people, and uh, I'd love to have them on my side anytime. You know, if so- something went down. Um, but like if like the 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 standard of behavior. So first off, like being a cop's like a crazy job to me. I don't even know how the hell you guys do that. Like it's it like even pulling somebody over. I wouldn't want to go up to their car. Like I that just pulling someone over for a traffic ticket. So you guys have this super hard job, and so then you have these like snapped 
last second judgment things that you're supposed to make. You there's the professionalism, all the different uh, the conduct, the way to keep you know the the emotions here, even though like uh, keep the emotions low, even though the situation might be at a super high level. Like all those different things require a pretty special person to pull off, and to to be able to do that keep a cool head and make a good decision again and again and again over the course of a 20 or 30 year career, however long you guys do it. I mean, that's it. it, It's going to take an investment on, on, I guess our end of the society to to put our money where our mouth is, pay the cops what they're worth, you know? And yeah, I mean the taxpayers, the citizens, everyone needs to understand that law enforcement gels, we're investing in our society. We're saying, you know, it's kind of the necessary evil. If we want a well-managed society, we have to pay law enforcement. Now, people hopefully aren't getting into law enforcement thinking they're going to get rich because they're just not. But at the same time, we need to make sure that our law enforcement officers are getting paid enough that we're valuing the training that we're investing in them, that we're valuing their time, and that they can support their families. Because at the end of the day, we want I want all of the law enforcement officers, all of my peers, all of my colleagues, all of my friends to go home and be able to support their family and have that downtime and understand that, like, we're going to make sure that you've made enough that you can pay your bills. You know, if you're living beyond your means, uh, there's not a lot we can do for you. But housing's gotten more expensive in Weber County. Vehicles have gotten more expensive. Food's gotten more expensive. We need to make sure that the pay of law enforcement and the correctional officers and our government employees is keeping on pace with that so that they're not working their max hours and not being able to support themselves. Well, it's not just, it doesn't seem like it's just a campaign slogan. Like, you know, I'm running for school office and I'm like, and I'll get free lunches, you know, or something like that. Like (laughs) you're, what you're talking about in terms of increasing pay is a function of also improving the officer. So, so you, you then can literally afford to be more picky with who becomes an officer and who you choose to kind of, like you said, exit out of that role. Well, I mean, if effective, if as the Weber County Sheriff, if I'm always having to be in a recruiting role because everyone else is taking my great officers, then I can't necessarily be a selective. Mm -hmm. But if we're paying them what they're truly worth because of all we've invested into them, then in the long run, we're actually saving money because, well, now I don't have as much turnover, so I'm not having to go through the recruiting process, and I'm not having to train all these new officers, and I'm not Mm -hmm. having to put them in with other officers for additional training. Mm -hmm. Like, And and we have more stability, and we have more experience. And instead of having, you know... Mm -hmm. The average experience being cure, you know, let's say it's, I don't know what it is. Let's say it's three years. The average mm-hmm. deputy has three years. Well, if the average deputy has five, they've had more life experience. Mm-hmm. They've had more experience in the profession. Um, when I made a parole officer way back, you know, 13 years ago, however how long it's been, mm-hmm. I didn't know nearly what I needed to, even though I'd been given the agency's blessing, go forth and, you know, do do great things, but I didn't understand. And it took multiple years before it was like, oh, I get it. Oh, I have the conference. Oh, I've seen this scenario before, so I know how to address Mm -hmm. it. You know, that takes time. Mm -hmm. And if we're always recruiting, then we lose people who've had that experience, who've had those experiences. And all of a sudden we have staff getting to that point and they're like, oh my gosh, what do I do in this 
situation. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, for some of these agencies outside of Utah, really, they don't have that experience. And all of a sudden, you know, they're getting into trouble mm-hmm. where maybe they wouldn't have if we had been paying law enforcement what we need to pay them, you know? Yeah. 100%. But, but it, it, it seems, too, like we have to deal with this a lot, too, um, with – you know, in the behavioral health field, I think uh, it's really similar. Um, we, so as a therapist, same thing. I graduate, you know, school, and I and I feel like I got all this knowledge, and I want to go help people, and hoorah, off we go. And um, you know, one of the things that we can all commiserate about is, oh, we need to get paid more. Okay, so behavioral health, you know, not nearly paid as much as like physical health. Say, if I was a doctor or something. But I also don't think that we should be at this point. And the reason why is because, um, you know, in behavior- they're smarter than us. Well, there's, <laughs> there's that, yeah. but, but also I think there's, um, you know, like there's, I, I like the sense of, I mean, one of the things I really, uh, agree with what you're saying is the sense of accountability on my end, you know, as a therapist, um, what am I doing to, utilize methods that work. This is one of the things that drives me nuts in behavioral health is that we complain and commiserate about we don't get paid enough, but are we doing the things that we know to be effective? In other words, you know, I use the word evidence-based practices a lot, but I mean, if I want to legitimize my profession as being something that deserves that bigger paycheck, why well, better have the evidence? It's kind of like, you know, prove it. I mean, I need to have a scoreboard to show that what I'm doing is effective. And I think the same goes for, you know, law enforcement. Can we, can we do, can we work on the things that we know to be effective? Can we get the right people in there, you know, the right people on the bus and get them going in the right direction and pay them what it's worth. And at that point, then we can make an argument for paying more and it makes more sense. And people will agree with that. If therapy, like in law enforcement, you know, therapy is very much a flavor of the month type thing. And, Oh, I saw this on Dr. Phil, so I'm going to try it. Well, no, I mean, there's, no, you know, nothing against Dr. Phil. Um, I'm just saying, if if there's no evidence to support what you're doing, why are you doing it? And if and if it's not helpful, you know, I think anecdotally sometimes things make us feel good. Same thing with others, but overall, I think the sense of I like the accountability on our end. I mean, we we in order to get kind of paid more, we need to make the case for getting paid more, and uh, and I think that's a very good way of approaching it. It's pretty effective. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's make the case that we need to pay <clears throat> the deputies more. Mm-hmm. We need to pay the the staff at the sheriff's office. And just in general, let's make the case that law enforcement needs to be paid better for the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, from a probation and parole standpoint, you know, and we're asking these staff to be caseworkers and marriage therapists and counselors and law enforcement officers we're asking them to wear 20 hats Mm -hmm. and then we're going but we're not really going to pay you anything great we're going to just consider you all entry level when well that's not an entry level skill you know we're we're taking you know really great staff probation parole has really great staff and the Mm -hmm. staff i've interacted with at the sheriff's office have really great staff and then we're saying yeah but I mean, shouldn't you be able to get by, you know, just making here? I mean, mm-hmm. what we're asking you to do is worth, you know, up here. Mm-hmm. But can't you just be happy with here? Well, mm-hmm. the job will still get done here. But, like, we need to just pay. We need to show the evidence that this is what it should be. Well, yeah. again, you can be selective when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did you, uh, was it, uh, I was, I, I meant to ask you something and we talked about this a little bit before. So were you on, uh, were you on live PD on TV the other night? I think I was on live PD. So I've been doing this Operation Rio Grande stuff. Yeah. Was that, do you want to explain what that is real quick, just in case someone oh, listening the, sure. doesn't know what that is? Yeah. yeah. So on the on Rio Grande Street in downtown Salt Lake City is the Road Home Homeless Shelter. It's Salt Lake City's main homeless shelter. It has uh, 1,200 beds. Don't quote me on that. I think it's about 1,200 right now. It's for essentially single males, single females. Families have moved out to Midvale. Um, over the past few years... They've had such an influx of individuals, and I don't think there's any one cause of it, but essentially it just became kind of the Wild West in downtown Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. And the citizens got tired of it, and law enforcement got tired of it, and the state legislature got tired of it. And so they're dumping a lot of resources into it. Um, Increased law enforcement presence, which is what I'm trying to help with, they have placed more Department of Workforce Services workers there to help these people work on resumes and get jobs. They're funding more treatment beds. They're, they're just trying to kind of help those people get out of that because um, I read somewhere that research has actually shown getting people services and into long-term housing is cheaper than supporting them at the homeless shelter. And I think they're mm-hmm. trying to move away from that model. So, and when you said like the Wild West, it's not like they're shooting each other down. Well, I mean, people are getting shot in any people, city. I mean, people are getting shot down there. There's a lot of drug use. There was open air drug use. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, pick the worst things in society, and that pretty much was occurring. Because basically, like a miniature downtown San Francisco, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I've never been to San Francisco. Don't but. ever go there. <laughs> it's no. awful. I mean, but just think of like you know. The things that you don't want in society, and that's where you'd find them, you know? Yeah. You want to buy drugs, that's where you'd go. You wanted mm-hmm. to engage in criminal behavior, theft, robbery, murder. Th- I mean, that's where you'd go because it was just <laughs> – Right. So if I'm a – I mean, if I'm a but, – but the other side of that is, okay, so there's clearly criminals down there. But the flip side of that is if I'm a newly paroled um, person from prison – trying to get my life together, but I don't have any funds. I don't have any family. You're going to end up there. Got to go to the homeless shelter. Immediately back into likely Mm. some of the things that led you to prison to begin with. So the cliched revolving door is a very real thing down there. And this was money and efforts to offset that. In other words. Okay. So now back to the live PD. Yes. So I was out, (laughs) (laughs) I was out during operation Rio Grande. Um, Department of Public Safety, Highway Patrol, they have live PD kind of embedded with them. So especially on the weekends, I'll see live PD out. And they called me uh, because they had a parolee um, and I rolled up and Mm -hmm. they started to ask questions and live PD had their cameras out. And I walked up to him and, you know, here's before we started the podcast, we were making jokes about, you know, nicknames and killer and stuff. And I walked up to this person who they had pulled up and the system said was on parole. And so they wanted to see what we were doing with him if he was in compliance and i walked up and i'm all hey what's your name and he's all my name's killer i'm killer dog (laughs) and it was like okay well i can see how this is gonna go you know like so you know it's like okay well i'll just walk over and ask them your name you know and he's like they got nothing on me they're like well we found him in possession of heroin open container marijuana yeah um and on his ankle he had one of those like gps electronic monitors yeah. so he already wasn't doing real great on parole right and all of a sudden you know it's like 
oh oh you're all good you're in violation or whatever that's it's you know i looked at i watched that and it was just it was so crazy because i just i think it was on uh friday night i was what friday or saturday friday night night, i was watching this and and i was like um i was like oh i think we're interviewing him on monday for the podcast (laughs) And, and it was just so funny because I mean, I look at that situation and that guy was, I mean, he was not paying attention to you whatsoever. He was yelling at the camera. I mean, I don't even know what he was saying, but I mean, you were asking very simple questions, you know, and I think as a, as a law enforcement official, like you were talking about, like you just roll up and pull people over. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, especially when, when it's like that, like I would, I can see why it'd be so frustrating at times. Like I, I can see why. That is a hard job, man. Like that, I mean, you are trying to. Well, you're generally seeing people at their lowest too, at their worst, sure, just nonstop yeah. and no appreciation for it all day, every day. Well, right, and and I mean, there's a camera there, and one of the things I don't know exactly what he was saying, but I do know that he was um, yelling like accusations into the camera, like you see how they treat me and all that, you know. Like, and I'm paying attention to it, and I'm like, I mean, I would want to be like. Actually, um, Live PD, that's not what's happening. What's actually happening, you know, I, I want to, and you didn't, you didn't break away from that. I think, uh, I mean, just, you, you conducted yourself appropriately and professionally and try to get his attention and try to, you know, get down to the bottom of it. But I, I man, I don't know. My hat goes off to you guys because I would get frustrated. I think that'd be hard to do. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard, especially like down there where they're like, hey, probation and parole, can you guys come? help us out can you give us some information mm-hmm. and like for him you know after life pd had left and you know he was in my car because we were transporting him to deal with his violations he's like well you didn't have any right to pull me over and i was like sir like i'm not even the person that pulled you over like well you have nothing on me like listen this is not my actually i have an stuff. ankle monitor on you it's right there <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, you know. but you know he just he was so angry about what he felt like i had done wrong it's like i just rolled up and just yeah Tried to get some information. Oh man, that just—it's a—it's a very different job that you have. Yeah, like well, I mean, we're, we're used to dealing with people that lose their temper at us. That's what we we deal with that all the time. But I mean, mm-hmm. like we're we're almost positive that they aren't armed. You know sure. what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, I, I've never like in my entire career. I think the only time I've ever feared for my safety was with like a 13 year old kid at a group home. Oh you know, yeah, it's, it, I was fearful of them too. Yeah, it, it's a. Uh, you know, it, we deal with uh, people that obviously are pretty upset at the jail. You know, we're sometimes people in the outpacing office. Uh, Justin and I had a mutual client that um, wasn't all there and it kind of threatened to do us some harm. Uh, the guy who thought the speaker was a... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that guy. Like I thought you. I was spying on him when I was playing music. Oh, he thought yeah. my Bluetooth speaker was... Yeah. Well, let's be honest. You were we were spying on him, but through yeah, that Bluetooth, be found out. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's neither here nor there. Yeah, but, but I mean, so, so so we deal with that stuff, but uh, with police officers is a whole nother level. And again, the the split second decision making and uh, keeping a cool head. I know. Mean, I guess. I guess these things that we sort of ran over is 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 a it's a skill set that for one, even the sharpest minds aren't going to be able to pick up on day one. It's something that's a it's a probably got to be a combination then of experience, you know, several years in the job plus being the best and the brightest. And then maybe now, now you finally have a good cop, someone that can make the right call and, you know, less people get hurt when you, when you're employing those type of people and, you know, less, less wrongdoing, less shady stuff, less, less uh, reason for the city getting sued, maybe ultimately cheaper overall on the taxpayer. I remember 
a while ago when I was a parole officer. I was supervising this individual. He was on for robbery. Um, big Pacific Islander. He easily had 200 pounds on me. Um, but I always kind of made sure that I treated him professionally. I treated him fairly, open communication. And he started to struggle a little bit because he got back into drugs and he called me up one day and was like, hey, I need to talk to you. I'm really struggling. I'm okay. Well, let's talk. Like, can we, can you come in? He's all, I'm, I'm outside your door. And so I walked outside, you know, the door of APNP in Salt Lake when I was down there. Here's this big, huge Pacific Islander. And he's like, hey, I'm really struggling. Okay, well, let's talk about it. He's all, well, before we do anything, you should know I have a gun. Which, like, from a law enforcement thing, like, I didn't walk out the door, you know, with my vest on. Like, I walked out in, you know, tan pants, a black polo shirt. I mean, I had my gun and my badge. But now I have a guy who easily, you know, could do something. And, you know, we just talked. And I was like, listen, I just need you not to, like, reach for your waistband. And, like, I respected him enough and he respected me enough that, like, we were able to talk through some of the stuff he needed, get him some of his mental health crisis because he's feeling a little bit suicidal. And then... Take a gun off of him, just matter of factly. That, see, that's see, that's not something. I don't know if I have that in me, man. Oh, dude, I'd I be, mean, I'd be I like, don't, well, I don't know, I'd if run I, or something. I know, I, I, I would like turn right out of my heels, like and sprint face first into the door that was behind me or something, you know, and just fall down, cry. I don't know, like, but uh, like I want, I want staff, <laughs> nope, to have good enough relationships, and I know that there are people in our community who that would never work on, but I want staff in all of law enforcement to cultivate those relationships where they can talk to someone and they feel like they can talk back to the deputy, the parole officer, the law, police yeah. officer, whatever, and be willing to own up to where they're at. You know, I mean, taking a gun off of a convicted person felony, he was on for robbery. Him having a gun, sorry, I can't hear you guys and stuff. Good. That's a new felony, <clears throat> you know, and he knew that he was when all was said and done, he was going to get charged with a new felony and he had a wife and kids and he knew that that felony could have sent him to federal prison. Cause do you, we, do, do you chalk this up to your prior relationship that you had bothered to establish beforehand? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was him coming in, you know, and you talk about some of the shift leaders and stuff at the halfway house. Like if we cultivate just in law enforcement in general, that professional relationship, the feeling that people can talk to you, I treat you with respect. It doesn't matter what your crime is. It doesn't matter how repulsive that may be to my personal bias. Like I'm able to treat you impartially. I'm able to treat you professionally. You're able to talk to me with whatever. And I'm able to talk to back to you professionally. You may be more willing to come to me when you're in that crisis and we can get through it without. Man, see, that's yeah. the type of news story that doesn't go reported because you did your job well. Well, it's not you know, sensational. It's though. a type of thing that that's boring. Well, well right, exactly. But yeah, I, I mean, I, what I, are you going to do? News headline like APMP officer develops no, relationship with client. Of course not. Like, yeah, <laughs> but, people but, won't care. Well, and and, and that's what that's exactly it, though, right? Is that uh, the that type of action is what's needed. That that's what actually does work. That's what fosters those relationships and the. The, the headlines where tragedy happens, those are the ones that we hear about. Uh, mm -hmm. that, I mean, that, I don't know. I mean, that, that's going to happen as well. But if, if you set things up a way that maybe the, the overall relationship or the culture between the community and the police officers is one that, uh, convicted robber that's armed and probably high could talk to you and, 
give himself over is, I don't know, that's that's rare. Yeah. yeah. I want the community to know the amazing things that the sheriff's office is doing. Mm-hmm. If they are helping a flock of ducks across the road, like the community should know about that kind of stuff, the same as they should know about they found this convicted robber. Like mm-hmm. they should just know the law enforcement side they're doing and kind of that community stuff they're doing. I'd read an article about ducks. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, I think, I think a big part of what you're trying to do that I appreciate that I think would go a long way as far as bridging this gap is like Jeff was talking about earlier is just kind of this growing divide of, of mistrust between the average person and law enforcement. I think when you have that, there's in those interactions where you pull somebody over, or you stop someone, tensions are much more high. I think law enforcement setting the example, if you were to go more the route of being more transparent, I think would start to bridge that. I can't remember who exactly it was or what exactly he said, but I know when the whole Rio Grande thing was getting kicked off, there was a, I think he was 16 or 17 was shot by police and he was killed and they were going to investigate it and there were protests and I don't know if it was the sheriff whoever came out, but the first thing he said is, hey, I want to say I'm sorry that this happened. I'm sorry this kid, I'm sorry that the family's been impacted. And people took that as he was saying that they were at fault. He's like, I'm not saying anyone's at fault, but I'm just saying as the mm. sheriff or as who is in charge, I'm sorry this happened. Yeah. That I that this is hard for the family. I think that went a long way. I yeah. know I know it hit me because I think there's a lot of humility at the situations we ask police officers to be in and handle, quote unquote, perfectly. It's not going to happen. So I think there's a lot of humility when police can come forward or someone come forward to say, hey, yeah, we did make a mistake here. This could have went better. Mm-hmm. I think that would go a long way. Unfortunately, yeah, there's the legal side. They have to worry about how they word things to avoid litigation. So unfortunately, what? that's just a necessarily evil. But sometimes mm-hmm. just saying, hey, we did mess up and we need to learn from it, I think starts to bridge that gap. That's tough. That's really tough because like you're saying, like especially from law enforcement perspective, I wonder like if I do that, you know, a lawyer to never apologize because then I'm admitting yeah, guilt, right? Sure. But one thing I've noticed, and this is something I think APMP does really well, and I and I particularly felt this from you. So when I was when we when we were working as a treatment team, I always felt like you guys were very supportive of treatment. Yeah. And the thing that I try to do in return to that is, and I don't know, you guys can kind of back me up here. Is I really try to help them empathize with their APMP agents or their shift leaders. And when I say empathize, again, I'm not saying I want you to like the dude or I want you to feel sorry. I'm saying, look. They're approaching your case from a different point of view, and we have to respect that point of view. Um, you have to have a working relationship with your PO. doesn't mean you need to like that dude. I'm saying you have to have a working relationship because, trust me, it doesn't do them any good for you to be dangerous in the community. They want you to do this, but you got to approach it differently. I'm your therapist, and yeah, sure, you like the way that I talk to you. Unfortunately, it's not going to go like that with your PO because they're in a different capacity. doesn't mean they're going to be rude to you. doesn't mean they're going to treat you like crap. It just means it's going to be different. And um, I always I always felt like you had very much supported us as treatment providers, which enabled me to do well to support you guys and, and helping. Because I think if, if we're a united front approaching the client, they're going to be more effective. The client's going to be more effective overall making being successful when they know that that's going on i mean i I, one of the biggest pet peeves is when you have a a therapist kind of like pitting the client against the po and doing this triangulation thing and clients try to do that on their own which is normal i think we just address that bring it out in the open and it's all said and done with very easy to deal with um but yeah i've always felt i mean i really appreciate the fact that you've always been supportive of treatment and that you've always helped us with that well i i view treatment as one of the most integral parts of what we do Um, as a society, as a parole officer, as whatever, we can't just incarcerate our way out of 
whatever is occurring. Mm-hmm. The mental health crisis, the opiate crisis, pick whatever crisis you want. We can't incarcerate our way out of that. Mm-hmm. There will never be enough jail beds. So treatment is the way to hopefully get people out of this lifestyle. Some people will never get out of it. And that's okay. We can deal with those people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, though, they've made some decisions that have sent them down this road. Let's help them get off this road because they'll probably remember what that road looks like and they'll stay away from it. Mm-hmm. I don't have the skills. I don't have the patience. I don't have the mindset to help them get there. I don't have the training. I don't have the education. My background's completely different. Mm-hmm. Dude, I, I, I appreciate you saying that actually, because I, I think we're like definitely respecting the skills that you guys have as officers. You know, I, I'm acknowledging that I can't do that myself. And for, I guess, I guess for you to be willing to say that, hey, you know what, let us do our job as therapists, uh, puts the ball into our court as well. And again, like Mace was talking about how he spends time trying to teach his, clients, you know, maybe to empathize a bit with your position. I mean, just this morning, uh, I ran two groups out at the region three building in Salt Lake. And, uh, the, the topic was specifically on how all communication is basically a series of transactions, give and take. And I talked about the difference between relationships that are important and relationships that are preferred. You know, and sometimes those aren't always the two same things. And I, I was, I was trying to get the the clients to come around to the idea that your relationship with your probation officer, whatever it is, it it might not it might not be a preferred relationship. I mean, if if there weren't legal problems, you probably wouldn't be at the guy's barbecue the next day or something. But it's certainly an important relationship and one that needs to be nurtured. And I, I talked about how it's actually in the client's best interest to be willing to open up and share a little bit with a PO. Not as maybe not the same stuff that they're going to talk about with a therapist, but as a probation officer, when you're asking any changes in employment, and you know uh, the, the the list of questions that you run through with a parolee. And they're doing their best to fly under the radar and answer as minimally as possible. Yes, no, do everything they can just to get out the door so they don't have to see again for an entire month. Like, that's not necessarily a bad approach, but at the same time, they're not exactly letting you, the officer, see them as a human being, the side that Mace Justin and I get to see. And so we, I was encouraging them, like, you know what? Let your parole officer get to know you a little bit, open up a little bit. Uh, that, that's going to make his job easier which makes your life easier. If he's not sweating you, wondering if you're coasting under the radar and you're up to something, and instead says like, oh, okay, well, yeah, this guy did kind of have a crappy week and he may be struggling with these things and I guess he didn't have to tell me that and that, was, that took some courage. Like, you're probably going to be worrying about that dude less, right, than the guy that's being super shifty and isn't answering a thing. Exactly. You know, you want people, and I know it's hard, you know, you walk into someone that – the court or the board of pardon said, you will go see this person whenever they tell you to, for whatever reason they want. I get it. it we're probably not going to be friends, but if I know what's going on in your life, I can help. I can help mitigate some of the problems you may be having. One of my jobs is to, you know, help you be, help an offender be successful, but also balancing on the side of public safety. So if you tell me what's going on, you know, hey, I'm really struggling with, let's say they're using drugs. I'm really struggling with drugs. Okay, well, let's start to look for ways to address that struggle because then hopefully you can move away from struggling so much. You're not likely going to be out committing new crimes. You're, I don't have to worry so much about that. Like, 
You know, uh-huh. if you're reporting as directed and you're telling me what's going on, I see you, I touch base with you, and then I can kind of focus on the people who are being shady. You know, if I get the impression that you're shady, I'm going to pay more attention to you. So the people that are like, well, I'm just going to give minimal answers and try to fly under the radar. Yeah, your parole officer is probably paying a little bit more attention to you. Yeah, that's suspicious. Because, you yeah. know, you're not telling everything's us good going all on. the time. Right. Yeah. yeah, I like I like the idea though. Um, I mean, it's always kind of I, I kind of like the analogy sometimes of like you know a dangerous vehicle on the road. I don't want to compare people to vehicles, but sometimes analogies kind of help us understand this. I mean, if I have it's not it's not a um a character deficit of of a of a car who has shoddy brakes you know that's a that's a risk to the other cars that are on the road and so i need to bring that into the mechanics and get that fixed temporarily to then put that back out there the idea there being though that rehabilitation is a huge focus right i mean it's not just this is a this is an indicator of bad character. You're a bad person, and so we're going to incarcerate you because you're a bad person, particularly with substance use. I mean, substance use is – there's a lot of controversy about that. You know, is this, is this a disease? Is it a choice? You know, and – um, and, and it does get really convoluted and, and we as, you know, the clinical professionals, I think we have a really good beat on that in helping the clients. Um, I, and so from a, a listener perspective, um, what do you see, what do you foresee at the, you know, particularly at the sheriff's department, um, Weber County jail in particular, do you see in terms of programming that will assist clients, um, making that transition, kind of doing the rehabilitation piece. So when they do transition out, you know, they're, they've got all their, brake pads and everything else, you know, to go back well, to the analogy. I'm not exactly sure everything you guys are doing there. Um, I come from, I spent a lot of time working in Salt Lake. I've been in Ogden for multiple years now, but I mean, when I learned how to be a pro officer, it was in Salt Lake. So population of, I don't know, five times the size of Weber County at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and when someone was struggling, we had treatment providers in the community. We had treatment in the jail. Um, and as much as there's some people in the community who think that you should go to jail and you should sit there and, I don't know, stare at the wall, move rocks from one side of the parking lot to the other, treatment's important. Um, right now in Weber County, if let's just look at a pers- a male using drugs, mm-hmm. um, if he's on probation, um, he can do some outpatient therapy maybe with you guys, maybe with other treatment providers. If his needs increase, maybe he moves to residential. Mm-hmm. Really, for a male, the only residential that has any kind of evidence behind it is treatment they do at the Northern Utah Community Correctional Center. You mm-hmm. live there, you do treatment, you leave. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're struggling there, the treatment opportunities in Weber County just stop. There's nothing more. That's the highest level. So if I go to Nuke, the Northern Nuke Community Correction Center, I don't do well. I fell out. I go back to jail. Services are done, though, at that point. Yeah, I mean, most likely you're either going to end up getting a sentence of incarceration. Mm-hmm. You'll serve X number of days in jail. And then you'll just walk back out into the community one day. Mm. Or we'll send you to the prison where you'll sit and do really nothing because mm-hmm. there's limited treatment opportunities at the prison. Mm-hmm. That's not what the focus is so much right now. And then you'll come back out. So they may legitimately not be appropriate for kind of the community-based halfway house thing where I do have a, some access to the community. They, they may be enough risk where jail or prison makes sense, but then 
your concern is that treatment stops there and and there's no ongoing treatment services from that point forward. But some of the other counties have, in Salt Lake County, it's called CATS. In Davis County, they have an RSAT, residential substance abuse. I envision having, for those males and females, because for females, there's even less treatment opportunities in Weber County. Mm -hmm. If you're to the point where you pretty much need to focus on treatment and nothing but treatment, then let's put you in a safe place where you're essentially in jail and you just focus on treatment. Mm-hmm. You start working on your thinking errors. You start looking on your trauma. You start looking at the things that have kind of led you here so that when you finish the residential in jail, we can move you down to an appropriate level of care. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys deal with the ASAM all the time. Yeah. So we could move from residential to like intensive outpatient. Mm-hmm. Like we could move the steps the way they're designed to move. Yeah, Whereas cl- in, clinically yeah. move the client through those steps yeah. to where they're needed lower level yeah, of care. Yeah, because right now in Weber County, you really get to about intensive outpatient, which really is about what Nuke is at. Mm-hmm. I mean, they may feel like they're residential, but they really are probably about at an IOP level of mm-hmm. care yeah. other than you're living there. If you need more in Weber County, we're just saying, well, we got nothing else for you. Good luck with that. Yeah. We're... We're missing this whole population who then are getting out of jail or then are walking away from the halfway house or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're going and they're committing more forgeries, more property crimes, more retail thefts. They're mm-hmm. impacting the community. They're causing yeah. more arrests. So we're incarcerating them again. They're having to go through the court process and we're having to provide mm-hmm. a judge and a public defender for them and mm-hmm. the county attorney. And then they're on probation again. Like we're just... Yeah. We're on a merry-go-round, and if That's we can't a, figure out how to get people off mm-hmm. the merry-go-round, more people are going to end up on the merry-go-round, and at some point, the whole merry-go-round is just going to break. Sure. And then the kids at the playground have nothing. There you go. Yeah. That's, <laughs> well, that's a tough sell for, like, a citizen who's paying taxes and everything. I mean, because you're – I mean, but but then again, it's not like they're going to the Cirque Lodge or something. I mean, we're providing ther- – and, and the goal – is can I rehabilitate this person enough so they're no longer a threat to commit crime in the community? Like, I, I think the reality of um, somebody who's maybe not involved in law enforcement or forensic therapy needs to understand is at one point or another, these people are going to come to back to the community. And look, jail makes sense to me. Jail makes probably sense to every one of us in here. Like, I, I am terrified of that place, okay? And I'm not going to do things to put me in there. So the deterrence theory type mentality of the incarceration, yeah, it scares me. Uh, a lot of those guys, it doesn't scare them a bit. And it's and sometimes it actually makes them better criminals. And when they come out, they're, they're worse off than when they went in. And that's a reality we have to come to come to grips with and understanding that, look, putting the right people in the right positions, we're working with them and rehabilitating them is better for the community in the long run. And it makes this community a safer place and you're going to see less recidivism and less crime. The crime's already committed. It's already done. I mean, yeah, they're going to pay a punishment, of course. We all know there's consequences and all that's fine. But this rehabilitation efforts, can we modify the way that this person thinks, how they behave, and what their environment is when they get out to prevent that from happening? And I think any efforts on that is money very well, you know, invested. And obviously, I'm biased. I think we do a better job than most at working with really high-level offenders. But um, in any event, you know, I, I would say that I, I completely agree with that. Not just because I'm a therapist. I mean, I genuinely believe that for my community as well. Well, I don't believe that we're talking a massive cost here. Obviously, there's going to be a cost for the treatment. Mm-hmm. But I'm not proposing that 
when I show up at the sheriff's office as the new sheriff that, okay, time to do a 40 million addition to the jail to make this treatment happen. You're not going to start equestrian therapy? No. <laughs> but but I'm, not, I'm not even talking about expanding the jail. I'm saying let's use the bed space that we have, but let's allocate some of it to kind of this residential level of treatment, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's utilize what we have. Let's look for maybe some areas where we can trim a little bit in the budget to get treatment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So not a huge increase in cost, maybe just spending more effectively and efficiently yeah, for I mean, treatment. Obviously, sake. we're going to have to fund the cost of treatment providers to come in and provide this treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't worry, we're cheap. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that I think that's great, man. I mean, I, I did, uh, we just know that upon release, you know, I think that they they have they continue to lack services. If we can bridge that gap, make the transition more smooth, and 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 give them the skills, not just not just like okay, can we hold their hand in the entire way, but can I give them the skills to mo- to take care of business once they get out? Um, yeah, I think we're going to see a big turnaround there. Yeah. We well, and we're lacking that. on the mental health side of that too. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm I'm talking about a residential substance abuse portion at the jail, mm-hmm. and that's all important. But right now, we have a lot of offenders in Weber County who go to jail because they have some mental health needs and maybe they're, they don't know it, but mm-hmm. whatever they get, they get stable in jail mm-hmm. and they start to see clearly. Mm-hmm. And then they walk out of jail and what do we give them? Mm. What a three day supply of meds, if that, yeah. um, I don't know about you guys, but if you were walking out of jail in three days, can you get back to work? have money, have insurance, see a treatment provider and go to the pharmacy. Like, I think we're setting people up for failure. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, we should be handing people prescriptions for Oxycontin and Percocet that they can go sell. Like Mm -hmm. maybe just a little bit of case management. Yeah. Like some case management, but like, but if you have bipolar, what's one of the big bipolar meds? Lithium. Lithium. Mm -hmm. Let's just say lithium. And lithium has been around since forever. Mm Mm-hmm. As the jail mental health providers, someone's getting ready to release, and we know they're releasing. Why can't we write them a prescription for lithium mm-hmm. that's good for 30, 60, 90 days? Mm-hmm. And they can walk out and go to Walmart, Rite Aid, pick your pharmacy that does these cheap things, mm-hmm. and fill a 90-day supply for $4, $10, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that the offenders, the people walking out of jail, can't come up with $4, 10 $20 to fill a prescription. It's... They lack the prescription to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, if they have a prescription that's good for a couple of months, well, then they can get back to work and they can get insurance or figure out how to access the resources in the community to stay stable mm-hmm. and then not hope. And hopefully they won't start self-medicating mm-hmm. and hopefully they won't start committing new crimes and then they don't come back to jail because yeah. writing a prescription that's for a generic $20 med, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper than housing someone in jail for one day. Sure, I mean, and I don't, and I don't know what the limitations are on the physicians down there at all. I mean, I do know. Um, I, I mean, we, I think, you know, because we're um, Nita Baki is down there. She does an excellent job, top notch, in terms of helping those clients stabilize, getting them to the physician. Um, we did a podcast with her. Um, and just kind of talking about what that process is. And you're right. I think the we're really good at helping them stabilize in jail. The transition is where the problem comes in. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, I don't know exactly the nuances of it. I mean, I, I, I couldn't speak to it, but I, 
the forward thinking on that is, I think, helpful for people to kind of understand about that. So, I mean, I think we need to do it for people at the halfway houses, too. Like, you know, you show up to the halfway house from prison, you get a 30-day supply of medications. I know that that one's a 30 because I've seen it. Mm -hmm. But it's not enough. Like, I get providing people with a prescriber may not be the most exciting thing because it's like, well, my family doesn't have a prescriber. Well, your family isn't necessarily the one committing the crimes. And if we can keep people stable, at least while they're on probation, the hope is that by the time they're off, they have stable employment and they're in a better position and they can take care of themselves. Or they've at least developed the community connections to know where to access it from. If I was in charge of, you know, bigger things at corrections, we'd have like a nurse practitioner who would work under the direction of the prison medical staff and would come out to the halfway houses, like maybe they come to Nukon every Monday mm-hmm. and they meet with like our clients that are really struggling that we are identifying and like, hey, why don't you go meet with them? Man, it, you know, it's, it, it's cool to see your passion come through in this. You know, you've got, you've got a lot of ideas. Obviously, you've been doing a lot of thinking. Do you, do you have like a website or anything where you, like a yeah, pla- where you have like platform positions written down or anything like this? Like the- so I haven't done a great job of writing them down. I do have, if you go onto Facebook, yeah. um, Adrian, the number four WCSO will take you to like my little kind of. Well, wait, what? what? Adrian. Adrian, yeah. the number four. Okay. A-D-R-I-E-N. A-D-R-I-A-N. A-D-R-I-A-N four. Four WCSO. So Weber County Sheriff's Office. Okay. Um, it has some of the stuff I've been writing um, over the next couple of weeks. I plan to kind of put in some of my platform positions, kind of what I'm thinking about, yeah. where I stand on certain things. Um, I was recently asked about, well, where do you stand on marijuana legalization? Well, I stand on the side of whatever the legislature, which I am not, enacts is what my job is to enforce. Mm. So if good position for a shirt, right? Yeah. yeah your, your job's to enforce. But like, it's not my job to come out and go, well, I think that marijuana is good. I think marijuana is bad. I think whatever. That it doesn't matter necessarily what I think about marijuana or any other drugs. You're sticking to your branch of the government. <laughs> yes. Like mm-hmm. the branch of government that the sheriff's office is, is to enforce the laws yeah. that the legislature branch of government has written. So if, marijuana is completely illegal, then it's my expectation that myself and all of the deputies will enforce the laws that is written. If it's illegal, then you will cite for it and you will arrest people for it. If medicinal marijuana passes on the ballot in November and the law is changed, then whatever the law reads is what we'll enforce. So Smart. if people like what they're, what they're hearing, they like what you're saying, um, how, do they, how do they vote? How does, this, how does that work? So the Republicans are holding a primary in June. You have to be a registered Republican. Is there going to be a debate? I don't know. Oh, I got to oh. see. I got to see who the challengers are. I think that Matt Bell. He used to be a county commissioner. I think. He, well, I know he's running. He's told me himself he's running. Okay. There's some other people who are gathering signatures. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gathering signatures as well. Um, so register I, as a Republican. Vote in June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you don't want to register as a Republican, like, that's okay. You know, everyone, we need Democrats, we need independents, we need the whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, tell your friends about me and if you think I'm a good candidate. Mm -hmm. um, If you have questions, please reach out to me and send me an email. Mm -hmm. Adrian, A-D-R-I-N, the number four, WCSO at Mm gmail.com. I'll reply back. Ask whatever you want. I'll do my best to answer it. 
Um, hopefully you like what I say. If you don't, well, that's okay too. You know, mm-hmm. that at least helps you research who you think is a better candidate. Um, if you can't vote in the Republican primary because you're something else, then hopefully I make it through the primary and you can vote for me come November 6th. That's cool, man. Awesome. Appreciate right. you coming on, man. Well, let's wrap this up, huh? All right. Okay. All right. Thanks, okay. buddy. Thanks for the invitation. All righty, folks. That does it for this episode. Tune in next week when we will be talking about stuff or pornography or something along those lines. You might just have to tune in and figure it out for for yourselves. All right, so that's going to do it for today. We want to thank you for tuning in. We want to thank Adrian for coming on the show. We included some information about his website or his Facebook page in the link or in the bio for this episode. You can check it out there. Also, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that jazz. Gorilla Social Work. It's G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. Gorilla Social Work. And we will see you on the next episode.